why can't news organizations be the ones that are driving community cohesion? Why can't they be the ones that are, you know, sitting inside our public libraries and reimagining them as spaces of information, working in coalition with, you know, local advice groups and the kind of public library and the kind of public civic organizations and as function of that kind of news organization? Why can't it be the place that everyone turns to? We could be that. Like that could be what journalism looks like in the future. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Media Voices. We're the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world this week. And also, welcome back to Esther. Hello. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been I've been good. Although apparently, I'd leave and, and like look what happens. Yeah, you were the only thing keeping the media industry together. <laughs> so I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. This week, I spoke to Megan Lucera, who is the founder of the Bureau Local at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. We had a great chat about the practical considerations that go into creating collaborative journalism, what the future of that local journalism might look like, and why parachuting journalists into local areas isn't a solution to those woes. First of all, quick update, the scores are coming in from our Podcast Award judges. Over 100 podcasts made the shortlist, and our judges have been diligently listening to help us figure out the best publisher podcasts. Winners will be revealed in a virtual celebration on Wednesday the 21st of April. Big thanks to everyone who's paid cold hard cash for their tickets. Thank you so much. We appreciate your generosity. And if you're feeling generous, there are print programmes and gift boxes available for UK attendees to allow them to celebrate at home on the 21st. Everything's at the publisherpodcastawards.com. Prosecco! <laughs> Before that, though, the news roundup. <laughs> really, there's only one story that we could be talking about this week. Um, Metallica went on Twitch to play a virtual <laughs> concert. But to begin with, then, oh God, Esther, you're just back. Can you take this up, please? What has happened this week with Google <laughs> in Australia? Welcome back! <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think this is this is two stories, really, isn't it? Um mm. We've we've talked quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about Australia's news bargaining code, which is I think that's due to actually come into force in August, isn't it? Well, it's, it's currently going into consultation until August when it's going to be yeah. voted through, but it's as good as a done deal, really. So this week, quite unexpectedly, News Corp, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, News Corp Australia agreed a licensing deal to feature its news content in Google's news showcase, which is something Google said that they wouldn't do with Australian publishers because of the legislation, and Murdoch's obviously turned them around on that. Um, so I think that it's it's uh, News Corp 9 and 7 West Media in Australia that have now got these licensing deals agreed, mm-hmm. which is the same, like, you know, UK publishers have had that, German publishers have, have got some of these licensing deals undergoing. This isn't exclusive to Australia. But it's like the Times in the UK part yeah. of this deal. So, I mean, the idea for this one is that the Australian government is going to act as effectively a buffer or a membrane, and it's going to act as this intermediary which is going to determine a fair value of content, and it's going to apply that equally to both publisher and platform. That is, in effect, the the novelty of this approach. Um, <laughs> it's a good word, novelty. <laughs> and off the back of Google, I suppose, agreeing to this, Facebook took a slightly different tack. What did they do, Peter? <laughs> they said, fuck you, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> they basically pulled the plug. They, yeah. pulled, they, they shut down anything that could be vaguely 
Well, they shut down everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. exactly. If they basically anything that could be considered as news content, they shut down, uh, which is part of the problem, I think. Including including their own Facebook <laughs> yeah, page. I saw that, yeah. yeah, their corporate page. You know, part of what they said was, we're not paying you money because we don't know how much you want. They did exactly what they said they would do in September. Yeah. I, and, and as yet, it's unclear whether them saying this and doing this almost as a demonstration of what they consider to be the value exchange is just a negotiating tactic. Because as of the time of this recording, it is reported that they're back in the room and they're talking about potentially, well, they're talking about what future steps they need to take forward. Potentially, that's the result of the bollocking that they got from a lot of the Australian papers owned by Murdoch. If we're still trying to stick to the facts, the other, rather than, as you say, the emotive opinion side of this, they handled this badly. Yeah, optics-wise, yeah, yeah, very from a badly. PR point of view, whether, regardless of whether you think the, that you should pay for Lincoln to News or not pay to Lincoln to News, they handled this really badly. That was Emily Bell's point, wasn't it? Yeah, she absolutely. sort of really flagged up the the fact that regardless of whether they're in the moral right on this one issue, it looks as though they have taken the ball and go home. I think she said for a company that is well versed in massive PR disasters, this is an even bigger <laughs> massive PR. <laughs> uh, so that's where we are at the moment. The terms of payments are still up in the air. The terms of who is actually going to get those payments is still up in the air. I also have to say um, the the blocking of non news pages did get reversed uh, later mm. in the week. First, we did say that was an error. Um, but then they've also said well, that okay, they've also said that that there, there's a lot of grey area because the law isn't clear about which entities are actually considered news. So the, yeah, there's going to be more fallout from that. That's such a Facebook thing to say. <laughs> no, okay, but that's that is a completely legit response from Facebook. Oh, I think I Come think it's on, legitimate Peter, as well. How do you how do you delineate what is news from what is not news content? Okay, it shouldn't be about news. <laughs> it should be about money. And a charity page shouldn't get blocked, and a local news, a local community group shouldn't get blocked. And and the point is, this is the problem from Facebook's point of view and the PR point of view, that they've basically just took a massive sledgehammer to this, and now everyone hates them even more than they hated <laughs> them before. And I mean, I think what what's really interesting about this is that there is any opinion you can imagine on this story. <laughs> Yeah. Is, out, is out there. there. There have been some really, really good ones and some really, really bad ones. And I, and I, I think <laughs> the problem with the ones we've put down is that they're, they all sort of agree with our own opinions on this. Well, that's, I'm going to try and do a little bit of um, devil's avocado here. but Benedict Evans, I think, is my absolute favourite on this. Go. Um, because he's he's written substantially about it. His timeline is currently like absolutely full of him tweeting about this. But my favourite one from him, I think, is that complaining that Google and Facebook are somehow taking money that should go to newspapers makes about as much sense as arguing that airlines stole money from ocean liners. <laughs> and I'm just going to sit yeah. back there. <laughs> that is completely that is completely right. And I think that's it. I'm glad you flagged that up now because as good as some of the technical arguments have been from people who we disagree with, ultimately it's predicated on that idea that the tech giants somehow owe newspapers. To me, it's like saying that Netflix should pay Blockbuster. Yeah, and I, and I feel like we've not really got the time on this one to go into the details of why that is. Um, and I just need to stop myself getting angry about it again. <laughs> um, it, it, it is really polarised. A lot of the sort of people in media, you, you've almost got these two really quite extreme camps. Um, 
Which is, yeah, I think certainly I've seen some slinging matches on Twitter over the last few oh, days. Oh my God, it's been, it, it has been like watching your parents break up for me. <laughs> just like <laughs> watching people who I really respect just kind of degenerate into calling each other corrupt online. It's been quite hard. But anyone who has a proper vested interest in publishing revenues tends to be on the side of the Australian legislation. Mm. And anyone who has a, a, an open web view, a view of the internet as a as a place where we should all be sharing information and you should be able to move freely, has the the, the Australian government is <laughs> mental point of view. Well, it's less that they're it's less that they're mental and more that they've caved. What was I mean? I know you love Jeff Jarvis's response, Peter. What was that? Oh, Jeff Jeff Jarvis's response to the Google thing initially was so good because he's just so passionate about it. You know, he, you know, this is not a man who hates Google. He wrote a book called "What Would Google Do." Mm. Um, but he's basically saying that um, Murdoch has blackmailed them. I think is the word he used. Yeah, or bullied them. I don't know if it was blackmail, it was, bully, bribery. I think, I can't I think he's probably which. used all of them. Basically, the the word devil is used, the word <laughs> evil is used, yeah, bullying is used, blackmail. You know, and he basically says that Murdoch has used the Australian government to beat up on the tech lobby. A lot of people have split it into a two sides argument, but but it's not. You know, if, if you if you disagree with. Um, the Australian government, that doesn't mean that you don't think Facebook has too much power and yeah, exactly. is also responding yeah. in, in a bad way. And there's so many different kind of complex Definitely. issues that have come into play here. It, and it's like we said before the podcast, the enemy of, of my enemy is still a dickhead. Yeah, <laughs> like it's... Absolutely. yeah uh, so, you know, you, you can you can think that this whole link, paying for links idea is absolutely insane and also sit there and say Google and Facebook shouldn't be able to just pull the plug on services in, in the country and the yeah. Australian government shouldn't be able just to sit there and be like, if you don't like it, walk. Like, that. yeah. Mm. That's the point, though. They're like, um, if, what was, what was that? I saw someone talk, was it Mike Masnick? The tech dirt? I can't yeah. remember. Anyway, Google's the, um, the Australian gov- government is, is saying to the tech giants, okay, you have to pay newspapers or stop sharing news. And Facebook says, okay, we'll stop sharing, stop sharing news. No, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, that's an attack on the sovereignty of our country. Yeah. What you've done, what we said. It's bonkers. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Mike Mastic on TechNock is brilliant on this. And I think that just to sum up some of the arguments against this deal, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff Jarvis is of the opinion that it is uh, Murdoch sort of strong-arming the Australian government, who he has significant influence with, to come up with a deal that significantly benefits him and other larger journalism outlets. And at the same time, there is no provision currently in place to make sure that smaller publishers and independent publishers will benefit from this. In fact, they seem to be significant losers as of as of the moment. Opponents of this of this deal say that, well, look, this is going to get ported elsewhere. This is effectively a blueprint for allowing direct mm. funding Absolutely. of news from platforms, which has its own... That, there are so many inherent problems with direct payments from platforms to publishers, not least the fact that you're probably going to see a return of significant clickbait, because in this sense, it's volume that matters and not quality. And then the other side of that argument is, oh, well, actually, no, we can grade quality because you know we, ha- we, we trust these publishers that we have on our books. But the issue there is that you've got, for instance, like Newsmax, 
and f***ing Fox News on there. So it's not an objective measure of quality or of how trustworthy or of how accurate they are in their reporting. It's just a matter of who's paying you. And I mean, that's that, that's the issue with this, the deal that Google's striking with news publishers around the world for licensing is that the whole mechanism of that in itself is, is really, really flawed against independent journalism outlets or smaller news outlets. And it yes, it's a solution, but it's 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 it's, it's so flawed. That's what Emily Bell said. She's saying that by turning off news sharing and making such a mess of it, Facebook's turned attention away from the idea that this is a really flawed piece of legislation. Oh, it's, as of yet, there's nothing in there. Yeah, you've seen people. So I know that Jason Kent's a big advocate of it at the moment. I've looked at the A Triple C stuff. You know, as much detail as I could possibly find. I don't think at the moment that there is any cast iron guarantee in there that this is going to benefit anybody other than. The, the larger players, and that's my big worry with it. Well, but Jason's Jason's constituency is the larger players, premium publishers, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so, we can have a discussion about what premium means in that sense, but let's not get not, into it not, today. Not today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mean, we, we've gone through some of the hot takes, we've gone through some of the big objections. Is there anything else we need to flag before we get into what we think is going to happen next? Well, I think Thomas Bechdel made a really good point, uh, and I actually caught it through Jeff Jarvis talking about it, but uh, Tom, what Thomas is saying. Oh yeah, I saw this. Which is obvious. If news publishers think that they should, you know, they should get paid by Google or or, or Facebook for quoting or linking to to their news, they should be paying people for linking to other stories in other places or other second sources. Yeah. You know, newspapers, particularly in this country, don't even pay people for stealing their pictures off of social media. You have to take them to court for it. Yeah. Is unbelievable. I agree, and it's it's perfectly possible to believe both that we need to find a way of funding journalism adequately in and around the world, in and around the world, in this country and around the world, and also to believe that <laughs> there are better ways to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are better ways to do this than hypocritically doing it. I think we can we can link to it like people people far cleverer than us have written some really really good stuff about this that we yep. will link to from the website mm. but we will not pay them to link to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might be forced to as a result of this legislation. Uh, That's the well, point. In which case, well, in do you which know case, what? We'll be shutting it down. We'll be doing a <laughs> <Yeah>. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what do we think is going to happen? What's Google's position from here? Are we waiting until August basically to see what the terms of the deal are, or are they just also going to kind of go, well, look, we've given you what you want. Can you stop asking us for money, which is ours by right? I don't think Google will do anything else. Mm. I think Google's done a deal. They'll keep doing more deals. You know, they did a deal in France. They'll do deals with other publishers. They'll just keep quiet. Google's a different organization than Facebook. See, I I don't don't agree with that because I think that if this legislation goes through, it still poses a huge threat to Google. And that threat is still there, even though even with the licensing deals that they've done. And um, I think they'll probably use the deals they've done to say, look, we are we are supporting publishers. Um, and they could quite easily do what Facebook have done and turn Google search off or, or leave Google search blank and still have the licensing agreement with the new showcase product. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if basically mm-hmm. Facebook gives them the balls to actually... Yeah, to, to basically do what, what they did in France and what they've done in Spain before and, and just leave search blank for publishers see, i'd love to see that deal but I, I bet you that deal precludes them from doing that i bet you it does so um casey newton spotted this that the uh, abc news who are an australian um local uh, national broadcaster um their news app actually flew to number one in the app store after <laughs> um facebook did this 
<laughs> well, that was, that was one of the arguments of the proponents of the bill is that it's actually going to lead to much more direct traffic to yeah. just sites anyway. Uh, that, but... that, seems a bit, that seems a bit like wishful thinking to me. Um, yes, yeah, so, so there, there have been some early studies on this. And again, like people like Axios and Casey Newton have, have pulled some of this. Is that um, yes, it, it has led to a lot more people going direct to publishers of traffic, but the stuff now left on Facebook is toxic and garbage. And I think they say that it, the, um, somebody ran a search for just COVID um, misinformation and it's, it's gone from like 2% to 40% of stuff oh, on there is now bollocks. Because it's, it? because it's coming from individuals rather than yep. organisations, right? Yep. See, wow. this is the this is the thing. Like, this is why we, I was so wound up earlier in the week. It's we're not on the side of Facebook. We're not on the side of Google. They are both guilty of leaving misinformation unchecked for far too long. What I'm annoyed about is that we are now forced into the situation where you have to pick a side between publishers and platforms, and the only people who are going to lose out are the public. And there are people. The, the one thing that's really upset me this week has been seeing people who claim to be representatives of the entire industry. They they purport to be supporters of journalism as a concept and as a practice, and yet they have turned out to just be apologists for the worst actors in the entire industry, and it's really upset me. I think that's a problem, is that this is all now about a power play between the worst people in this industry. <laughs> so, Esther, what's your solution? <laughs> um... Yeah, so, so I was thinking about this this week because um, I was trying to explain um, the problem to my husband and he was just like, yeah, but that's all very well, but what's, like, how do you fix it? Um, <laughs> possibly, I've possibly completely sleep deluded, so it might make absolutely no sense. <laughs> but do you remember um, a couple of weeks ago we talked about, um, there was a New York, ta- uh, New York City initiative where um, the mayor had given this executive order that said that you had to spend, I think it was like 40 to 50% of your ad budget on local media. And I thought, well, actually, if you could scale that up, a lot of the problem here is that vast amounts of ad spend and money are going out of Australia and into Google and Facebook, which is fine if you're American, but not if you're anybody else. Um, if Australia had some sort of legislation or, or, you know, countries put in some sort of legislation to say, if you are an, an agency or you, are, uh, you want to advertise in this country, you have to spend a certain proportion on not necessarily local media, but but on non on australian media whether that's magazines newspapers whatever it might be that would just stem a little bit of the tide of all of this stuff flowing into google and facebook and and i think it's it's taking the problem from google and facebook have had have got a better ad product so you need to incentivize spending elsewhere not punish google and facebook for for basically having a good platform and then I fix media and I'm just going to go back on my turn. Yeah. I will also mean? say this is not without its flaws, but you're comparing like something with a, something with some holes to something that's like as porous as a sponge. All hole. Yeah. <laughs> just... uh, I think it I think it's it works in New York. I could say, I could see it working in the UK. No chance. <laughs> Absolutely no chance. Oh, we haven't got time for me to tell you the forty three <laughs> reasons why I think it wouldn't work. But I, mean, that, good, I want to see how that. I want to see how it shakes out in New York. Okay, Chris Peter, lay down your solutions. <laughs> <laughs> I think what publishers really have to accept is that Facebook and Google are a really important part of their distribution model. Nothing's going to change that. I think they have to suck it up. Then they have to get really, really busy building direct relationships with their audiences and their advertisers either through the likes of paid content, paywall plays, 
or through newsletters or through registration walls, whatever it is. And with the advertisers, they've got to get clever and work with them and give them value that Google and Facebook can't. Google and Facebook's an algorithm business. They can point you. They can target you. They can't add any value. Publishers can add value. That's where they're going to make money in the future. The platforms, you know, Esther, part of what you're saying is absolutely right. You've got to get the money back into the local economy. But if, if Google and Facebook just paid the f***ing taxes in the countries where they earn the revenue in the first place, that'd be a hell of a start. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I mean, in that there's, it, nobody comes out of this looking good. No. And it's, from it's the government like... point, sorry, sorry, Chris, but from no, the go government on. point of view, they need to just get smarter. You know, I don't know whether it's people that don't understand the internet that is making these laws, yeah. whether people like Murdoch are pushing their agenda, yep. but they've got to stop trying to punish the platforms. I think it's all Unless it's for not paying the tax. Yeah. And we've seen that there are a lot of studies that show that if you take, you know, tax money, which is, you know, come from wherever, effectively, that's the point, and put it into civic projects like funding local journalism, that has a tangible benefit on communities and it has a tangible benefit on the economy as well. What you can't do and shouldn't do is do it by directly making platforms pay for news because that only benefits a subset of, of the players. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the problem with these licensing agreements as well, is that the licensing only benefits the big, only benefits the big players. Part of the reason I got upset with people, you know, advocating for you know Murdoch and the and the giant players, is that it's all predicated on this fake. It's a lie that you're owed advertising money from Google and Facebook. Absolutely. It's yep. it's all predicated on this one big lie, and as soon, unless we can grapple with it and accept it, the fact that they just built a better mousetrap, we're not going to have honest and adult conversations about this. I think, though, that since the damage is done and it's going to spread outside Australia, we need to exercise whatever remaining goodwill we have as a collective sort of unit of publishers and actually do some collective bargaining because at the moment it's only going to be the bigger players that succeed. And if when August rolls around, that has happened and we have adequate reparations effectively for the smaller, publish the smaller publishers in Australia, then I'll feel better about this. There's a fantastic uh, thread, actually, on Technology Review by Justin Hendricks, which looks at other ways you can actually fund news directly without having it as a paid-for model from the platforms, which uh, there's just too many endemic issues with that. Yep. It's almost it's almost like we need people legislating and putting together this, putting together solutions for this who actually understand how the internet works. Well, I've got one. <laughs> I've got an idea for this one. People give the UN a really hard time, but the yeah. one thing the UN does very well is work between different countries. So you need that you need that effective like digital United Nations. I think so, yeah. I think that's what it's gotta come yeah. down. And it's gotta, you know, mix up people like I don't know, Tim Berners Lee with the the guy Tristan Harris that talks about uh, humane technology. Mix them up with ad tech some, people. And some and TikTok influencers. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> you, need, you need that expertise, though. You do. You always yeah. get them in for con consultation. Get that, Craig Newmark interviewing them. You got to get yeah. people that understand the internet. Digital United Nations, it is then. Yeah, I think that's the answer. Can I be the one who has a gavel and I get to bang it and call things to water? <laughs> yeah, go on then. Nice. So this week I spoke to Megan Lucero, who is the founder of the Bureau Local at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. We had a great chat about the practical considerations that go into creating collaborative journalism, 
what the future of local journalism might look like, and why she's optimistic that the Bureau Local model might work elsewhere. First up, I began by asking her to explain the Bureau Local's mission. I've been in the industry in the UK now for about 10 years. You'll probably hear this accent is not native British. Um, uh, originally from California, came over here 10 years ago um, to study journalism, fascinated by the British press, wanted to become a foreign reporter. Mm. Funny now uh, that I'm running something deeply embedded uh, locally and fighting for the local survival of journalism in, in a country that I was not born in. So in some ways, I think I've landed as a, as a foreign reporter in some in some element but I started working at the Times of London um and yeah basic essentially kind of went from being a researcher to pitching a job at the paper about they needed to really reimagine the way that they were thinking about digital and really apply mm. a kind of a digital mindset in the way that they were working so I created a job called a story producer and it was back when they were trying to figure out tech and data and they were you know, they're still figuring things out so i was you know doing podcasts on soundcloud i was learning how to code so that we could embed um, interactives into stories i was you know helping them publish documents behind investigations and you know coaching their uh born correspondents on twitter to kind of uh thinking about how we can like tweet from protests and things like that so it was this like very wide-ranging role that was just like think about digital and like how nice it needs to be integrated into this organization. The progression at the Times meant I then went on to become their first data journalist and their first data editor. And I was reimagining how data needed to be integrated into the investigative process. Um, you know, start, you know, starting off from a place where, you know, when I was first hired as their data journalist, it was, you know, can you fix the printer? Uh, because that's <laughs> what data obviously was to, you know, one of my last big investigations was, you know, contributing to the um, blood doping of the Olympics and world championships with the Sunday time insight team. And that the data unit that I had built has like, was completely integrated into the journalistic process. So that kind of was the evolution of, um, of that during that time. But where I was getting to at the end of that was recognizing how important it was to make, to make journalism more open and more accessible and realizing we were doing so much data work, but it was the true privilege of just the national paper to have it. And it felt like we were collecting loads of local data, but we weren't really sharing that. It felt incredibly inefficient. You know, it, it seems incredibly inefficient to try to, for every newsroom to have to do it on their own. Um, yeah. And then I heard that the Bureau was seeking to address a few different challenges, recognizing that local journalism felt like it was really in dire straits at the time. The whole industry was really in flux. This was about four years ago now. Um, and watching a lot of local newsrooms struggle, the business model of journalism struggling, this was also at a time of Panama Papers. Um, so you might recall that's the kind of big collaborative worldwide investigation um, where they were kind of sharing databases on um, tax avoidance and, and investigating things around the world. And mm -hmm. so the idea came at the Bureau, which is, can we help, can we stand in solidarity with, you know, local reporters around the UK and help by sharing data and collaboration? So the original idea for Bureau Local by my editors was, can we make a Panama Papers of the UK? So can we create a, like a coalition and a collaboration instead of doing it around the world, doing it within mm -hmm. a single country? Could you get people from the Yorkshire Post, you know, to Liverpool Echo to work together on, on something that really has a public interest impact? So that was like, that was the challenge. It was, it was. Oh, it's a huge challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was very excited by that. Like it, the vastness of it was intriguing to me. Um, 
And yeah, as you so. say, like that's that's uh, you probably can sense a, a theme here. Like I I definitely I definitely gravitate towards this giant unknown space. I I I like that. That's where I live. So I think so. Yeah. So at the time, it was really how can we be one solution to this, and can we be contribute one solution to the local journalism crisis by applying collaboration and mm. open data? Um, so that you know sounds like a big challenge, but actually. Once we, you know, I got the job and to head up the beer local and my job is to, you know, design it, hire for it, make it happen. Um, and it was, you know, it just, it became so much more than that. Um, I, I think back on it now and I kind of laugh that that was one is like, there was a bit of, for me, a little bit of naivety about what that challenge would look like, but also to think that we thought we know how it would turn out <laughs> is a whole other thing. Um, so I suppose then the question is over nearly 400 local stories published subsequently and you know a couple of years down the line how has that mission really evolved then well the thing is the mission is still there i would argue this is true kind of all this these conversations we're having about innovation and journalism the mission of journalism is to you know tell important stories and to get information out in a way that is useful to society we have to kind of keep reimagining the way that we do that and i think the mission of of beer local is to you know, is to get information out, to support the information getting out locally so that it can spark change um, and to be to, to contribute to that through investigative journalism. So the challenge really evolved to be instead of just collaborating in a traditional sense of like basically partnership, we really embraced the idea of collaboration. So we called for technologists, we called for members of the public, we called for experts, like, and we kind of talk about it as our collaborations are people committing acts of journalism with us. Mm. So it's about contributing what you can um, to making sure that there is public interest, interest information holding power to account at the local level. Um, and that mission is, and I think that's what's been an interesting appeal about the Bureau Local is it didn't come in to simply be a top-down exercise. It wasn't about, we were going to do investigations and if you can just publish them, that'd be great. <laughs> um, it was truly about saying in order to, to fix this problem and this challenge that this industry has, we have to think about things differently. You know, we tell people in advance what we're investigating. Um, mm. We had a story that just was broke yesterday around um, Amazon's dominance in the local job market during the pandemic and, and the fact that workers in the warehouses are on zero hour contracts. And that we landed at the story um, because, you know, people were telling us like, I'm, I'm scared about what's happening to precarious work. What is going to happen to and kind of where it's going to happen to all of us. And this needs to be investigated and it needs yeah. to be done in a way that we can contribute to it. So that's been the unique thing is how do you bring journal, how do you kind of create collaborations in a way that is almost kind of designed almost like with product thinking or user thinking to, to, to think about how can people contribute? The things we really think are vital to journalism is you need to hear from people who are affected by the issue, right? People whose lives are directly touched by this. You need to hear from people who are deeply knowledgeable and are embedded in the issue. So this might be researchers, activists, uh, you know, NGOs, whatever that be. And you need people who can change the issue or, or raise the issue, right? So those could be people in power that are, you know, contributing to that. One of our big um, investigations at the Bureau was, was called Make Them Count. It was, uh, it was looking at those who die homeless. And we found that there was no record being collected of how many people die homeless. And 
our network and us decided that we would take this on. We would take this challenge on and we began sort of crowdsourcing it with local GPs and doctors and charities and reporters. And we would start to begin to collect records of people dying homeless. And that went on to, to spark the government to begin producing their own statistics. And um, we did a lot of investigations on why those people were dying as well and tried to tell their stories. From the Bureau of Locals perspective itself, what are the what are its own plans? If each individual story is an experiment, what are the goals over the next couple of years? Is it to scale up? Is it to increase the frequency of stories? Is it to, you know, as you mentioned, keep collaborating with people who will tell you what the stories that matter to the public are? I'm going to be focusing from April um, on an expansion of the Beer Local, but not an expansion in what, what might people might think. Um, we're not trying to go global or something. It's it's about how can we take the model of a shared infrastructure and apply that to the sustainability question. Um, one of the things we've been finding over the past four years is despite everything we are trying to contribute to this industry, it's still crumbling. Um, we still, we lose like collaborators every week, every time a newspaper shuts down or um, every time there's cuts and a reporter can't work with us. So while we think we're producing, we, you know, we're contributing a really important project to the ecosystem. We are very, very conscious that, you know, our very community, our very network is really struggling. And I guess is the question of how can, you know, is the approach and is what we're offering the most useful thing? And I think there are more things we can offer. So over the next year, we'll be exploring can we collaborate and share things that are more than just stories or more than just investigations and data? You know, can we share more resources that will help newsrooms survive and continue to do this kind of work? So it's a big question. Um, it's a huge question. That's, <laughs> that's what we talk about every week on this podcast. And, you know, we've been doing it four or five years and there seems to be no easy way out of this morass yeah. where cuts are constant. And while we do, you know, applaud everybody who is trying something new, there seems to be no roadmap it's mm. it's so up in the air at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it probably won't surprise you that my recommendation or my suggestion of how this can be solved is through collaboration. Um, mm. I don't think there is a single organization that's going to solve this. I don't think there should be. Uh, I think that we need to kind of build a coalition of public interest organizations that are trying to kind of collectively do that. That's what we'll be seeking to do the next year. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said we try, we really put collaboration into everything that we do, but it's, but it's really because it's recognizing, I think there's this idea that has been ingrained in us for so long that you've got to crack everything. You've got to own everything. You've got to dominate. And that has not worked and it's not working and yeah. we need to think differently. And I think the best way what we've learned from your local as i said is like a really effective and efficient way of providing investigative and data resources around the country was to create the shared network and i think that there's a way that we can create a shared network of infrastructure to to kind of do more than that and i don't think yeah. the bureau local will solve it by itself i think the aim is we're trying to figure out what how what can we best contribute and find other partners other organizations that can say i'll take up this bit and i'll take up that bit because this whole ecosystem is, you know, the benefit of it, the, the the success of it is vital to all of us. So obviously your background is in data journalism. And over the past couple of, I suppose over the past year, we've really seen some amazing high profile examples of data journalism being used to keep the public informed about things like lockdowns and the kind of the progression of COVID. So how vital then is data journalism for telling stories in accessible ways? And what are some of the challenges now that are, that are arising around creating those stories effectively? Yeah, well, I mean, 
I'm sure, I mean, you could do a whole episode as well in history oh, yes, of data so, yeah. journalism and all of that. But I think it's, as I was saying, kind of, as we said at the beginning, you know, my history about it kind of, kind of came from a time in which there was this real excitement for a while. The data journalism was all about data visualization. You know, it was about how can we get some whizzy and exciting visuals on the story. And uh, over time, people then realized, oh, you could actually have like computer assisted reporting, right? You could actually embed it into how you do your journalism so that your journalism digs deeper and um, has kind of that greater kind of impact in a way that a human couldn't do. I think that's the most, to me, the, the most powerful and effective kind of data journalism is, is recognizing that the world is data. <laughs> we, you know, we <laughs> exist in a world of data just in the same way that if you're going to send a reporter to be a foreign correspondent, you need to train them in hostile environment training. You need to sort of support that space. You need, they need to know what the environment is that they're being sent into. In the mm. same way, journalists need to navigate the world we live in. It's being dom- it is dominated by tech giants, by digitization, by data ownership. This is, this is how the world actually works. And if as journalists, we don't understand it and we're not equipped to question it, investigate it and hold it to account, then we're not really doing the job of our time. Oh, you preempted my next question. I was, I was desperate to ask you about kind of the accessibility issue. Mm. Is, there, is there anybody else, any other organizations that you think are doing that really, really well, making sure that people are aware of the, I suppose, the limitations of data, how people are using it, where they can find it and corroborate it themselves? Where, are we, where should we be looking for examples of how news organizations can be as transparent about that as possible? I to be honest, I think a lot of the data teams around UK have been really picking this up, but I think probably where the public feels it most right now is the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, yeah. in the way they've been rolling out vaccine statistics. People are accessing statistics every day now mm. um, when they check the news about vaccine numbers, COVID numbers. Um, they are an incredible organization that's, you know, that was really moving towards making that more accessible and um, to understand, but they really like, you know, they really had to kind of step that up over the past year. And I think that's been really interesting. And then how that's being used and you start noticing these organizations sort of explaining the the kind of complexities around that so much more, which I think is, um, you know, really important and mm. really engaging and really quite exciting. And I think, as I say, you're, you, there's so much of it happening that I think journalists have stopped kind of making a big yeah, deal about right. it you know they used to kind yeah, of always make like a big deal about it, out. it. Yeah. yeah and there's still a little bit of that but mainly it's just a good story and i apologize for asking this next question towards the end of the interview because it is huge <laughs> but um what do you think are some of the biggest emerging opportunities for journalists at the moment is it kind of the availability of you know tools like podcasting to tell stories is it that ability to communicate with our communities directly what are some of those big opportunities we should be paying attention to Woof. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's such a huge question. And I'm finding it really difficult in my mind to, to narrow to narrow that down. Um, but I I actually think on a reporting level, we have to build trust again. We have to connect mm. deeply again. We have to rebuild trust in that and people are doing that in different ways you know there's more what we just talked about right now like hiding how you do it in the back of the story there's a lot of reasons to not do that because people aren't trusting journalism and where it comes from so there's a lot of initiatives around 
documenting how they fact-checked something or um, talking to people about how they got the story, really showing the labor that goes into journalism, helping people understand what what's being done there and being really transparent that the practices are, you know, ethical and right. But I think, so I think, but building trust has a lot to do with the relationships we have with our communities. This is about kind of, again, stepping away from the extractive side of journalism and really reimagining that we stopping talking at people and thinking that journalism is this thing that you should understand and really mm-hmm. being driven by what people want. I, I just think, I th- I know so many people that don't engage with the news. I know they don't trust it. They, you know, we did this big report last year in the Bureau Local. Um, and there was, some, there was a woman who said, I would rather not be in the news than be in, than, than be in the news because I know I will be misrepresented. Oh God. I know. Yeah. Like, and this was, you know, and this was talking about kind of her community of kind of an ethnic background and saying, I, I would rather no one ever know about what we're going through than to be in the news because seeing how poorly we're misrepresented to seeing how we are, um, you know, pushed to the sidelines or how we're blamed for various things. And I just think that was something that still sticks with me is just so incredibly heartbreaking that we've lost so many people along the way in that. And obviously the changing nature of information news at the moment, which is people are more dependent on social platforms for their information, whether that's kind of Facebook or others. And I think that is, that is the challenge of journalism. But I also think that intersects with what I was, you know, what, what I'm kind of also interested in, which is the challenge of our business that we have to yeah. kind of we have to reimagine how our industry functions and how it works. Um, I have this really hopeful idea of journalism. No, I have this great. real belief that it could be something so different than what we think of at the moment. Like, yeah, journalists, journalism could be the connector of a community. It could be the source of, of how information and how people function it. That's what it used to be. Buying your local paper was your ticket to being a citizen. You know, yeah. it, it, it showed you how to interact with which schools you were going to send your kids to, or what the kind of local sports results were, or what was happening in your town council or whatever it was you needed. It. You needed this bit of information to find out the weather for the next day, as much as you needed um, the TV listing or whatever it was. And that was the business model behind it as well. Like the news part was never really paid for the advertisers always want the eyeballs on that whole package. And obviously the internet yeah. disaggregated that it's set. Now you can get your weather elsewhere. You can get your sports listening elsewhere. You get your TV. Everything is disaggregated. So all you're left now is the news bit of it. And I think the challenge of our time is to think about what that could look like. You know, yeah. why can't, why can't news organizations be the ones that are driving community cohesion why can't they be the ones that are, you know, sitting inside our public libraries and reimagining them as spaces of information, working in coalition with, you know, local advice groups and the kind of public library and the kind of public civic organizations and as function of that kind of news organization? Why can't it be the place that everyone turns to? We could be that. Like that could be what journalism looks like in the future if we let it. And there's a bit, there is a business model behind that because there is need. And that's where I think we've that kind of break at the moment between what we think people need and what they kind of really do need and what journalism actually is a function and serving of people and kind of what we aren't kind of doing that yet. 
I think the limitations to that have been in, you know, investment and funding and um, taking it, taking it to that place. But yeah, you're right. There's such a, there's a commercial case to, to doing that, to either winning those audiences back or in some cases winning audiences for the first time. Mm. And there's a service journalism aspect to that. And I think that you're, you're completely right about that. And I'm going to be watching everything you do uh, <laughs> sort of along that journey very, very closely because that, that's, you're right, it's hopeful, but it's not unrealistic. It's mm. something that we can definitely do. I think the thing I just want to say to that, which I do think it's service journalism, but... Mm. I think there's this idea that service journalism sits over here <laughs> and like yeah. profitable journalism sits over here. And yeah. I think those things are one and connected. And I think that is the, that would be the real disruption I believe of the future is, is like shedding the idea that we need these profit seeking models where shareholders need to be paid out at the end of a, at the end of a business yeah. or a company rather than the kind of reporters being able to, either be paid properly or be, to be able to be invested in their communities. Um, I think we need real diversification of ownership. I think we need new models and new people owning it. We often have people who are so passionate about the industry, but they work in the content space. And then we have yeah. people over here who own all of it <laughs> and who decide <laughs> all of it. And I would love to see that. Like, that's what, that's what I'm so passionate about. That's what I'm wanting to look into next is how, how we do that. And as I say, the business question is about, actually providing a real need. And I do generally believe that the service side and the engagement side can provide the business solution rather than being kind of that, you know, that separate bit. Definitely. Megan, that's been fantastic. And I, I would happily chat about this for another <laughs> hour or two. But the final question that we ask all our guests is to recommend uh, one piece of media to the audience. It could be a book, it could be a podcast, it could be a movie, it could be absolutely anything. Well, you probably won't be surprised that I'm staying on my same <laughs> theme. Um, it's none of those things, but it is an initiative called the Tiny News Collective that's come out of the States recently. I'm kind of obsessed with it. Um, it's an initiative to try to create up a business, like startup package essentially for this new wave of journalism, investing in people who have been separated from the industry um, and giving them a whole business package to launch. Um, and it's a collective model. Um, anyways, this, I'm finding it so fascinating. I'm kind of reading about it, thinking about it loads. Um, and kind of, there's a lot of different initiatives like this coming through. Um, but there's also kind of alongside that, making me think of um, Media 2070 out of the States as well, which is about trying to reimagine journalism in reparations to what it's done um, to black history and to communities of color. Um, so both of those things, which I'm cheating, um, are two initiatives. I just think people should go and read about more because this is the kind of inspiration we need to kind of reimagine journalism. Thank you as always for listening, especially to this Byzantine <laughs> platform conversation. Please tell anyone you think might like our weekly media news roundup to listen to Media Voices and get your wallet out. <laughs> what a sell. <laughs> Why wouldn't people give us money from that? <laughs> and if you feel so inclined, head over to our Ko-Fi page, ko-fi.com slash mediavoices and give us a couple of quid to keep us smiling and it really does make us smile and if you're desperate for more media voices content and you want our hot takes in your inbox every morning uh, we have a daily newsletter 
So this contains just four of the most important media stories of the day, not too much, not too little, as curated by us. And it's also got our link to our latest episode, so you can sign up to that on our website at voices.media. Well, it's great to have you back, Esther, even if you did come back for a slightly rocky episode. (laughs) But uh, before we go, we do want to remind you that the Publisher Podcast Awards shortlist has been announced. So do head across to publisherpodcastawards.com to see that shortlist, to see our judges, and to sign up for tickets. We're trialing a pay-what-you-want system this year. But until next week, when we're going to be back with another fantastic guest and a tour through a hopefully more sedate week of news, thank Uh (laughs) thank you very much for listening and stay safe. Bye. I've got some way down there.